You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the mind of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and today I sit down with impact player Ria Lala. Ria is a parenting expert and a certified trainer and emotional intelligence specialist with almost 20 years of coaching and training experience. She has successfully led workshops globally on the intricacies of emotional intelligence to organizations like the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, uh, and public and private schools, as well as to parents. What Ria does is she gives you as a parent the tools to A, understand and be aware of what the needs are in a dynamic between parent and child, i.e. what your needs are as a parent, what the child's need uh, needs are. And then she gives you a much broader array of tools to be able to effectively resolve um, contention. So without that, what you often have is a very toxic environment where parent and child get into these power struggles and then there's yelling, there's frustration, there's door slams. And uh, uh, even in the best situations, you have two people that just don't understand each other and they feel unseen, they feel frustrated, and there's there's tension there in the household. Contrast that to a parent that has the tools that Rhea's about to teach you And you run into situations where there's a disagreement with your child and you have the ability to calmly uh, communicate, to ask questions, to better listen, to hear what the child's real needs are, because oftentimes children will communicate in uh, subtle subtle ways. They, they won't tell you exactly what they're feeling, because either A, they're not fully aware of it, or B, they don't have the language or the capacity to share it with you. So if you can start to better understand how to read those things that the child is actually communicating to, you have a much better chance to really hear and empathize what their needs are and then to be able to meet them as a parent. It also gives you the tools as a parent to communicate your needs back to them. So the result of which is a much more harmonious environment and studies upon studies have shown that that type of environment creates much happier, healthier, more confident, more successful children. So this is very uh, important work that she's doing it. It's a real pleasure to have her on the program. Um, There's a lot of gold in this particular call, so let's dive in. Here I am with Rhea Lala. All right, I am here with Rhea Lala, Lala, right? Lala, did I say that right? Okay. (laughs) I should have asked you how to say your last name too. Um, Rhea, you are a parenting expert, uh, among other things, right? Yeah, I'm a parenting (laughs) expert. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, I've been meaning to have you on the podcast for a little bit just cause you know, with two kids at home and you know, all the craziness that that entails, um, you often, when I see you pop up on my feed, have really great advice to help parents, you know, navigate the whole craziness of uh, child rearing and whatnot. Um, for those that don't know who you are, can you give a, a brief overview and background about who you are and a little bit about your story? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for about, you know, after I graduated for about 10 years, I worked in the corporate world as a consultant. And what I really did was work with execs and senior management on how to optimize relationships. So I'd sit in meetings with them. I would observe them in client interactions and uh, when they were speaking to their staff and figure out ways. Um, They were very open and receptive to feedback, usually. Uh, (laughs) And I would help them on how they can read the cues and really understand the conversation that's always happening under the conversation so they can have better relationships. So I did that for a while, but then, um, you know, something happened in our lives that allowed me to really think about what I wanted to do for my own business. And I remember reading a book and this book was really a paradigm shift in my mind. And it was called The Continuum Concept by a woman by the name of Jean Lederhoff. And she was a woman who went to live with indigenous societies all around the world. So in Papua New Guinea or in the forests of um, Brazil or in Uganda. And she observed how people reared their children very fundamentally different than how it did in the West. And I, I remember reading that book and just having my, like, being shocked at some of the things. And I'll give you a very simple one, right? That I think is quite fascinating. So everybody, uh, most people have held a baby, hopefully, uh, that are listening to your podcast. And if they have, uh, you know, the one thing we know that in the first month of life is you need to hold the baby's head off. Otherwise, it's just going to break off and who knows what's going to happen to the baby. Flop around, yeah. It's flop around. So we just set, accept that as a given, that for at least a month, you hold the baby's neck up. And... Uh, when she observed women in Uganda who had just given birth, within three days, the children had full muscular control of their neck muscles. So that begs the question, is it something different 
What are they doing different that allows that to happen? And just how they, what they do with the children from the time the child is born and how the mother actually engages with the child is usually very different than what we do in the West, which is we swaddle, swaddle the child, put them to sleep next to us or put them to sleep in a crib. Um, they do tend to sleep a lot at the beginning, whereas a mother in Uganda is going to work right away. It's skin-to-skin skin skin, skin contact, and she's working. And she's working where she's climbing up things and lifting things, so the child builds a lot of muscle control. So after I read that book, I started to question everything about parenting. And I had a young child myself. I had read that book, actually, just before I had had my son. And uh, I started to realize that a lot of what I was doing already um, played in very well into the parenting niche. But then I started reading a lot about neuroscience and child behavioral psychology. And I really immersed myself into that. And I still do. Like, it's a, it's a fascination for me. And that really uh, led me into my business, which is Build Great Minds, where I work with parents in either coaching or running programs on how they can optimize the relationships. So if a child isn't listening, if there's a disconnect between siblings, if the parent feels like they're frustrated and angry all the time and constantly being triggered, if the child has uh, difficulty in expressing their needs and their wants in a powerful way, or they tantrum and have meltdowns, what can you do that can optimize that? And uh, discipline, you know, how do you discipline in a way that's very conscious as opposed to using bribes or punishment? Mm -hmm. So this is something that um, I've been really effective at for the last, really, I would say 20 years. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I've been working on. Um, well, you've brought up several interesting things right then and there. And, and I have like 20 questions I want to ask you on that. So let's start sort of at a macro level and start to zoom in. What are some of the common mistakes that parents make that you see that we can illuminate and hopefully avoid? Common mistakes. Uh, one, just in no particular order, but getting into power struggles with their kids. Mm -hmm. so power struggle it ha occurs whenever you want to be right and somebody else wants to be right. You can't have a power struggle if you're willing to release the want to be right. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to struggle against, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the, I think that parents forget that just like we as grownups have this innate desire for power and control. Like heaven forbid if my husband were to come in while I'm watching a show and just turn it off and go, no, nope, showtime's done. Mm -hmm. Or let's suppose, no, you've had enough uh, iPad time. You got to turn it off. I would feel an immense amount of resistance towards my husband <laughs> if say that. Right. So children uh, at the age of two, which is why I don't call it the terrible twos, but the reason why it's called the terrible twos is because at that point, the child finally recognized that I have a sense of self that is different from my parents. Mm -hmm. so they, they start to realize that I have my own autonomous wants and needs. And if the parent does not recognize that the child needs that, needs to have a sense of power and control every day, and you can do that in really amazing ways by giving kids choices and whatnot, but then you're going to get a lot of resistance, which is why a child that choose favorite word is no, right? Because they're, they're wanting to say, no, I am not you. Now, this creates a sense of clash because the parent's mm -hmm. thinking, you used to do all my bidding and now you're saying, no, I don't like that. But the reality is if we had a little mini me that said yes to everything, there would be at some point where the parent goes, mm -hmm. why does this not mm -hmm. child not have a will of their own, right? So this is a good thing, but we don't see it as a good thing. So getting into power struggles was first recognizing that you're in a power struggle. And I have a really handy tip that might scare some parents on how to get out of a power struggle, but we can get to that when Oh, let's dive in. You can't bring that up and not, you can't dangle the carrot and not <laughs> allow us to take a bite. So uh, my tip for power struggles is the minute you recognize you're in a power struggle, which is you're no, you well, how do you recognize? Sometimes parents or people get so angry that they can't tell that they are either um, consciously or unconsciously in a power struggle. So unconsciously, you'd have to recognize that I'm noticing that I'm wanting to be right. I notice maybe my voice raising. I notice that my test, chest feels contracted. You have to look for psychosomatic signals uh, that generally in your soma, ideally. But my tip I learned from my dad and... Basically, if the child says this pen is yellow, but I say it's black, then what I would say in that moment is, oh, well, instead of trying to argue that it's black, no, it's black, I just give it to them. I just go, oh, well, 
I don't know, it, it looks like a different color, but if you say it's yellow, then it's, then it's yellow. Mm-hmm. And you let it go. Because what do you win by getting into the power struggle? If now someone in the audience might be thinking, well, isn't that going to have the child feel and go through their whole life thinking that this is yellow when it's mm-hmm. actually black? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Everything's kind of relative. But the thing is, is that I'm a real big believer, which brings me to another thing that uh, I think is really important for parents to know is that everything is about finding the teachable moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the teachable moment is when your mind is most receptive and most hospitable to anything that's being downloaded to you. So I could be in an argument because a child wants to be right in this moment and argue to the nth degree that it's yellow, that it's black. Or I could say, okay, I'm going to give it to you. And then I footnote it. I footnote for the right opportune moment where I can have a discussion with the child and explore that and make it into an engagement. And the child, if ever they're going to be led into a new realm of the blackness of this pen, that's the moment. So those two are probably way up there in terms of areas where parents, if they brought some awareness of those areas, uh, those are two really powerful game-changing ways to change relationships with your kids. What about when the quote unquote power struggle is over their safety or for what a parent feels is their in their best interest or, or even I find that just as I was, as you were sharing that, I was thinking about, well, where, when do I get in those kind of power struggles with my kids? And I think oftentimes it's just trying to get them out the door. Like there's a, there's a pressure of a deadline school starting, or we got to get here, go there. And if they're saying, Hey, I need to do this. And I'm going, regardless of what you think you need to do, the clock is still, you know, ticking. And so we need to get going. And, and sometimes we'll have tension or there'll be a type of, I guess you could say power struggle in that moment. So how do you, how do you navigate something like that where it's not, I need to be right per se. It's, it, it just is what it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's a lots of bits and pieces to that one. So a lot of it is the energy that we carry when our, mm-hmm. around our children. So I'm a big believer as best as possible. And Lord knows I'm not always in this situation that I can do this, but uh, where if I can set the kids up for success as best as possible. So let's just suppose now this, this is not a perfect world. So this is not always going to happen. But if I know we're going to leave in half an hour, right, then I want to make sure that I've given enough time that there, whatever the lollygagging needs to happen or last minute epiphanies that needs to come that I've got that in. I mean, that's the ideal. Okay. That's the dream. Assuming that hasn't happened, then what I would do is I first ground myself because one analogy that I love to use is you are the sun and the kids are the planets. Okay. And if the child is in a spin, oh my God, I can't find my shoe. I can't find my doll. I can't find my whatever it is they're looking for. And you now are under your own state of anxiety and stress. We've got to get at the door. Your spin, because remember the planets go around the sun. The sun doesn't go around the planet you are grounding and holding space for how this planet spins around you. So if your energy is one of tension and hyperness, and I've been in the situation where I get it all wrong, but I'm actually adding more tension to the space. So if I can just ground myself and then get down to their eye level and go, listen, I know that this is important to you as opposed to, okay, guys, everyone out the door. It's a different mm-hmm. energy when you're yelling and you know, kind of screaming to get them out the door. You feel tense. You want them to like rush But sometimes it can be so much more effective where you get down to their eye level and you have a moment, which seems like like you're going backwards because now you have to find 30 seconds to a minute to stare them in the eye and let them really feel. And you you can't fake that. Like you can't kind of go, hey guys, I I love you and I know that we need to go now. You have to really be that. So what do you have to do? What, What kind of ninja training do you have to do well before that so that you can ground yourself quicker and quicker and quicker and then get down and be like really connected to them in that moment where the child kind of feels, sometimes I really believe the children will lollygag in an effort to just to get attention. Mm-hmm. Because in the whole morning of the flurry of activity, they haven't felt a moment of presence. That's not always the case, but sometimes that is the case. Mm-hmm. And so if in that moment we can like be with them for a second, go listen, um, what do we need to do? Help me figure this out. So now you're co-creating a little bit. You're calm. They're calm. You get, take a moment to give them a hug where you have a full inhale and exhale. And while that seems sometimes very pie in the sky, because we can forget that as we're getting out the door, or if you forget all of that, go out the door, everyone's in the car. And now you feel like, okay, I've really rushed the kids. The kids are kind of hyper. What can you do at the next stop or the next moment to ground, ground the children again? Mm-hmm. So everyone 
feels in connection and attuned to each other. What can you do so you can say, hey guys, now that we've, after you've grounded and you've reconnected, let's, let's, can you be the parent or can we co-create something? And this in a state of love, there's a loving co-creation of what can we do next time to set ourselves up for success? Like you're dissecting the, the, the parts of it, the bits. Yeah. That's yeah. powerful. I think that actually brings me to another thing that can, that I think we miss as parents often is going back to dissect what happened to take away the epiphanies and the learning. Because if you don't do that, you're wasting so much good uh, material. Mm -hmm. and when you think about it, there's countless bits of material in the day. So, you know, if your child's in, in charge of certain chores and they don't get it done, sure, you can get into a power struggle, but you can make that into a really beautiful conversation that can lead down to five different glorious rabbit holes if you want to. Yeah. So, that's just some suggestions that I would recommend. Yeah. As I think about those moments in my experience, um, there's been plenty of times where I've, you know, not done it well and, you know, that I've added the tension and right. Um, so that being said, but the, I think the times where I think it has done well, one of the things that I noticed was that I, I went, I played through the worst case scenario in my head. All right. What if she's late? You know, I'm, th I'm thinking of my daughter because she's usually the one that's the, the last one. Actually, no, she does a pretty good job. But, eh, whatever. They both, they both have their moments. But what if the child is late to school or to whatever? Is it a habit we want to do? No, it's not. But let's say just worst case scenario. All right, well, they're 10 minutes late. They're 15 minutes late. Well, what happens then? Well, what happens then? And I kind of just go to that worst case scenario and it allows me to live in that potential reality and take a deep breath and go, all right, well, is it absolutely the end of the world? No, it's not perfect, but all right, it's not the absolute end of the world. And can we then shift our energy to a point where I can now communicate with my child and let that be a teachable moment to say, Hey, look, this is the rest of your life. There are deadlines. There are time, you know, we need to be time aware and things like that. Is there any way that I know you have a thousand things to do, but is there any way that we can fit this into the time or can some of those things wait or whatever and actually put the child's, like you said, make that a teachable moment and, and be with the child, be present with the child in that moment. Those are the times that I feel like my children have actually received and heard what I said. And oftentimes we'll shift their energy to, okay, let me get out the door like, and, and get to the result that I'm actually looking for. Well, I think that on a unconscious level, the energy, once you've made that shift, which is a really powerful framing, what you just did, right? So when you do something like that, what happens is something sh energetically is shifting in you. So now the children, I think, can feel that. Yeah. I really believe that the, this goes beyond the words that we say. It's basically the vibrations that we're sending out with the kids. Yeah. how they're feeling in the space. This is what we're, we call attunement, right? It's like a radio dial and you're trying to get, and you have some static here and you have some static here, but then you get it just perfectly on the station. You hear the music really crisply. Yes. And so if we can attune to where the children are at and she can feel probably a shift in you. So doing what you suggest is extremely powerful. Just, it made me also think about, uh, you know, here was a power struggle that, I used to get into with my son, but he runs hot and he never wanted to wear a jacket. And here's me thinking, okay, when you go out on the like November, December, and you don't have a jacket, I'm looking like bad mommy, bad mommy sending the child to school without a jacket. And so I had to really get over that because I realized that for me to, he's not four, you know, at the time he was about, actually I did it probably when he was seven. And I said to myself, this is the story that I'm running. The story I'm running is he's going to get a cold. Now he's going to stay home from school and I'm just working myself up into a frenzy. And then I said, you know what? What if I trusted him enough to be able to make a judgment call? And if he feels cold, I'm not going to go, see, I told you. I'm going to go, okay, you're cold. But he's going to be, I can work through a very loving save as for him to do in his own mind. Yes. So what do you know? I came to realize that he didn't get the cold and he could go out without the jacket. And you know what? I just had to deal with my own ego wondering how I appear to anybody else. So these are all, I mean, these are all the beautiful things that come as we appear. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I remember being a child and making my, uh, and having my mother make me wear a coat and, and I was not cold and how much that frustrated me. And your, uh, your 
courage to be vulnerable enough to say that it's actually my own story that I don't want other people to think I'm a bad mom kind of a thing is I think extremely <laughs> enlightening and inspiring because I think a lot of moms do do that. And as you know, a lot of women are cold. <laughs> Most women I know are often cold. You know? And as a man, we're just not. Yeah, exactly. So I, that's kind of fun. Um, what about uh, for those that are listening and who, uh, who think about or, or who would say that, well, you know, you're, you're giving the kid too much power. You're giving the kid too much say in this. I'm the parent. This is how things, I mean, this kind of goes back to the power struggle thing. But um, for those that feel that maybe this is, sometimes you hear in, in our culture right now that kids are soft because they're, they're so entitled. Parents give them so much, you know, say or whatever. What's your response to that? So generality? I through my coaching, I, you know, I remember one lady uh, mentioned that I don't want to raise, do any mamsy pamsy parenting and raise a mamsy pamsy child. The mm. idea was that they're soft and um, she grew up in a house that was very, uh, there was a lot of discipline. Now, here's the thing. Uh, do I believe that giving children choices, um, which by the way, children have an innate desire, Okay, so this is something behavioral psychologists have studied, innate desire to feel power and control. We're not talking about though. So for example, if I was gonna go skiing and then I look to my I don't, 10 and almost 13 year old child or 11 and almost 13, and I go, well, do you wanna go skiing? And maybe they're engrossed in whatever it is they're doing. So I'm asking them to step out into a future joy and, and internalize that and go, yeah, I wanna go skiing. They may or may not say that. Right. So I have to, because I'm the parents, sometimes have to make a judgment call. I'm not necessarily going to always go and, and, and do like a democracy and go, OK, does everybody want to go skiing? Do you want to go to the grocery store? Do you feel because when I start doing things like that, then the reality is, is one, I have to go to the grocery store and maybe you have to come with me. So I'm not going to give it as a choice, but I'm going to look for other places in the day where the child feels a sense of power and control. So it doesn't mean every time. Because you're still a parent and you're still trying to make a decision. And sometimes you can see that like, you're kind of standing, well, you're moving up like a mountain, but you, you can see um, like above and beyond. And I can uh, intuit that them going to skiing is going to be fantastic. So I'm not going to open that out as an option. Mm -hmm. But I'm also going to recognize that maybe I can, at lunchtime, I can have them feel that sense of power and control. So I don't believe that conscious parenting has anything to do with mamsy pamsy parenting. Um, I think that you'll find that you have children that are much able to reg regulate their emotions, be expressed about what they want, which is fantastic. I mean, I'd love my children. I mean, I think it's a win if my child tells me that I don't like the decision that you made or that decision frustrated me because I always would prefer that my child be able to express it mm. and have it stay inside of them and grow gang gangrene and um, feel disconnected from me in ways that I am unaware of. Yes. So uh, do I believe that um, not getting into power struggles? So, I, I mean, nobody wins from a power struggle. So in a power struggle, somebody goes away defeated. That's what happens. And if the child is consistently going away defeated, then they create a worldview and from experience about what this dynamic is between the parent and the child. So I don't want to have that with my child. I want my child to be able to come and sit on my lap and tell me every paper cut that's on their heart. Mm -hmm. I want them to be able to express everything, even the scary things, even the things they think might hurt my feelings. There's a place and a way to, to, to share that. And I can only do that if the child feels like they can... Um, that they're understood. I was going to say that, yeah, that they could be, that they feel heard. Feel heard. It's there to be heard. Yeah. Um, in terms of expressing a child, expressing themselves, um, I have noticed with my kids, one, a daughter, one, a son, that there are different levels of uh, sophistication and their emotional intelligence and different stages of that development. Do you recognize a difference in the emotional intelligence and and development between a young boy and a young girl and if so like how does that how do you factor that into your parenting at all because I, I mentioned that because i look at my son sometimes my daughter at two years old was 
you know, using language, she's very intelligent and she has a lot of articulation and just very connected emotionally as I find a lot of women are. And she was able to express that and communicate that and how she's feeling. Whereas my son, oftentimes you could tell that he'd be upset about something, but when you'd ask him, you know, is everything going okay? What's going on? There wasn't the language there yet. And now that he's, he's 11 now, now he's, his language is starting to you know, he'll communicate now much more. And he's very emotionally intelligent. And it was all there. He just didn't necessarily have the, probably from a neuroscience standpoint, the, the brain development yet to actually put words to what he was actually feeling. Do you find that, that there's different stages, at least with kids in general or between boys and girls? Well, we know for sure that uh, girls tend to be, be verbal long before boys tend to be verbal. Yes. How much of that is, you know, if we just go into an exploration into the masculine and the feminine, we know that the feminine tends to be more communal. It's like if the feminine energy is, how do we get up the mountain? And so mm -hmm. um, going back from an evolutionary standpoint, being able to um, express and pull people together. And, you know, there's a, there's a communal aspect to the feminine energy. Uh, the male, masculine has much more of an agentic, right? So they're thinking in terms of I. So that's one of the reasons um, from what I understand is why women tend to be more verbal. But here's the thing. Uh, I've started to work a lot with school systems. And then I've started to see, uh, you know, when you start working with classrooms, I generally see the girls start to put their hands up and express about a situation that happened and how they felt about it. But what I notice is that when you keep sharing and then, and then asking really good questions, I've noticed that the boys, like after the first three or four sessions, they start to come alive. Mm -hmm. And then you really start to realize just how much boys are holding in that they, uh, they've never had a place. Like I would, I would almost bet money that their parents have never known that this, the power struggles that they're experiencing at school, wondering how do I fit in, wondering do people like me, feeling frustrated about something that's happening with, with the mom or the dad, and never being able to feel like they can articulate it, and it finally comes out. And then I've noticed that they're very quick to express, um, but I haven't, seen, I haven't seen that much of a difference at, from the age of, uh, I'm trying to just, just there are, like, if you look up Piaget, there are stages of development, and I believe there are some differences between the girls and the boys. But when I'm working with kids from the ages of, like, seven plus, I'm, I feel like once the trust is there and the child feels very comfortable, they start expressing. But here's the other thing. You also have to look at the groups that the kids are hanging out with, right? If the kids, if the boys are in groups where no one's really talking about emotions, but girls are all over there, all over it, then you'll find that at home, the children are talking much more, um, much more uh, expressively and freely about what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. With boys, they might be playing sports or they might be doing whatever it is they're doing. And I find that consistently boys are not talking about emotions, which not because they're not having them. They, they have them but they're not maybe in environments where they see it exhibited a lot. Well, I, I want to, uh, this is a very important topic to me because I do think that there, I, I think that if we're going to paint in generalities, I do think that boys tend to, uh, to feel and then process emotions differently than girls do. And I hear a lot often in our culture right now, like, you know, boys need to be more expressive. They need to, you know, you're having these feelings. There's no space for it. Oh, these, they're, the poor things, they don't, they just never feel heard. And there's absolutely value to that. And I know as, as a man and a boy, having gone through that experience myself, like, yeah, of course I want to have space for that and feel heard and, and seen and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, there are times where I think that masculine energy processes it internally or in quality moments, not necessarily quantity moments. Um, and, and resolves it and moves forward. And I think, all of this I think comes down to a balance, but sometimes asking little boys to continue, you know, I'll, I'll hear sometimes uh, women go, well, how do you, how do you feel? And they just keep going after that. It's okay to tell me, open up, open up. And then, so finally the boy is like, okay, fine. Here's what I'm feeling. As opposed to what I like to do with my son is I, I'll do, I'll do check-ins. You doing okay, bud? And I've also noticed where my daughter is freely to express all the time. We'll be in the car. We'll be out. 
I'm just really feeling this way with, with some exceptions. My son on, on the other hand, very often needs privacy to, to really open up. And so, so I, I look for those moments. I think that's fantastic. So I just want to just make a point of saying, I'm not a believer in somebody dogging after somebody to try and get the information okay. because I feel that the child will shut down and they'll just be yes. alone. Right. Yep. So besides timing being a very important, but the trust being there. So my, my ninja trick for that is I don't look to try and extract from the kids. This seems very counterintuitive, but I look to share and it's through my sharing of my own, um, fears and my own places where I'm nervous and my own places where I feel left out and insecure. It's through that sharing. And then it's like this, do you ever feel like that? It's not trying to like, I'm trying to extract something from you because mm -hmm. you, they can feel your contracted energy around it because you're thinking that oh, something's bothering them. I kind of see it on their face. So I got to get it out of them. And then the child tends to go and shut down. So th this, you know, when you pick up kids from school, I know a lot of parents tend to ask things like, how was your day? Um, what did you do today? How did you, how was your day? Fine. What did you do today? Nothing. It's a, they're questions that generally get you nowhere. The, I would suggest trying a different way, which is you share something about your day, something needy, something interesting. And it could be anything. It could be somebody cut you off on the freeway and I felt really angry at them. And I was thinking that they're just feeling, being really selfish. And then when I thought that I could notice my hand get clenched on the dry, the wheel of the car and then I, um, then you walk them through what you did to calm down. Mm. Have you ever had a situation where, and you find something that tangentially ties to that? In my constant sharing now, the child starts to feel, see, where the child starts to feel terrified is that they have these feelings of loneliness or feeling left out or feeling um, nervous. And they don't want to feel like they're some weirdo child. So it starts to feel a sense of shame and fear to go and express it. Because they're like, gee, dad, do you ever feel like that? That's what every child wants to know is that I'm not some weirdo. And what I feel, everybody feels. And guess who else feels it? You feel it. Mm -hmm. So my role is not to extract. My role is to share. And then I invite the child very, um, and it's, again, timing is everything. That's why you have to be really attuned to your child. And this is where regulation for the parent comes in. Because... That's not, that's not a route I would take to try and figure out what's going on for a child. But do I feel that there's a fundamental difference between what the boy might be feeling and what a girl might be feeling? I, I have not seen that. Mm. I've seen that all the terrifying emotions, all, they might be on different things because different they have different experiences um, on the playground maybe. Yeah. But uh, fundamentally, do I feel that uh, the, the actual emotions or the feelings are there with the boy and the girls? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I 100% agree with you that, of course, you know, boys are human too, and they're going to experience emotions for sure. It, to me, it's in the processing. And I, I have found like with my son that uh, like I'll do check-ins and just continually remind him, hey, if you want to talk about it, it seemed like you were a little bit upset. If you want to talk about it, I'm here, you know, but then I let it go. And like you said, trust. I think that's so I think that's paramount to a child's development. Um, and then uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Alison Armstrong's work, but she talks about um, she helps women better understand men and how men view the world and process the world. And she has this thing called waiting for the well, where the emotion is there, but sometimes for a man, the way that he processes it, I'll just speak for myself. I'll, I'll be internal and I'll process internally. And there's a lot that's going on internally before I feel even ready to communicate it out in the world. Whereas I find that like my daughter is much more, the processing is in getting it out into the world. And that's how she kind of figures out where she's at with certain things. Um, and I find that that's been the same with my son where I'll just continually do check-ins and then every once in a while the well opens up and it's like, whoa, there was a lot in there that was, that needed to come out or, or, you know, but it was the right time and I gave him the trust to let him open up when sure. it was right for him. Here's one thing that I'd invite you as an option in those situations is um, in addition to doing the check-ins, see if you can find once your intuition has sort of latched onto something you think it might be yeah. right. Using your own intuition, mm -hmm. I would, sit down and tell a story. So the focus is off of him. You're not trying mm -hmm. to get anything out of him. You're just telling a story about a moment that you can tie that connects to something to do with him and then leave it. Right. And share something, make it as vulnerable and as authentic and as real and as vivid as you can make it. 
children love stories. Children love to hear authentic stories about their parents. And they love to see you because you live in a world of perfection. You're like the God in their lives, you Mm -hmm. know? And so when they can see you as, you know, bumbling your way through something, or I was about to jump on this call and I felt really nervous and you share and you share the intricacies of that. And the child gets a window into daddy who he sees as yes, big and strong and powerful, but also sometimes unsure and also sometimes afraid and nervous. That's a very powerful frame for a child to hold because then now the child feels liberated to be able to share with the dad maybe sooner than you might've thought about a moment where they felt on the playground where they felt scared and alone and um, left out. Yes. I I definitely found that to be the case. I love the idea of meeting children as a human equal, not, not to, um, not acknowledge that obviously as a parent, you have more experience, you, you know, you're going to, you're their leader, you're going to provide safety for them, et cetera. But to just simply meet them as uh, an inexperienced adult, you know, like they just don't have the experience that you have, but to meet them on that equal level of, Hey, I'm a human being, you're a human being. And I have found, like you just said that sharing sometimes, Hey, daddy's not perfect. Uh, you know, growing up, I had that perception of my parents as, they were perfect and they had, you know, they had it all together and they never really revealed. I mean, obviously there were, there were flaws, but they never necessarily owned those flaws and said, Hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not until we got older and we had more adult conversations, but I found that even as a young child communicating to my child to say, Hey, I don't have all the answers while on some level may seem like a little, you know, they want you to be the son. Like they need that guidance and, and the guardrails, but at the same time, allowing them to see that they're that you're still growing too i think is really helpful for them and their and their trust for you and then their follow through with how you communicate to to them that's been my experience anyway Uh, i would agree with that and i will say that every single day i'm looking like i am storing up moments where i felt uh any big emotion and keeping it in my pocket for a moment where I can share that with my kids because those are the stories that they find the most, like they don't even want, they they don't want a fiction story. They're like, no, no, I want a real story. Tell me about something to do with your life. So there's a million of them because all through the day I have a variety of different, I noticed where my ego came up. I noticed myself wanting to, you know, talk about myself in that moment with my girlfriend at the party. So a girl's party uh, becomes a moment to explore with my daughter and my son a myriad of different emotions and how I work through them. That's gold. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, this, this idea that let's try and find out information from the kids. I think that the more we share with the kids and, um, and how we work through it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like children seeing parents in a, in a tete-a-tete, right? If the, if the child sees the parents having, I don't know, like a little argument and they see the beginning of it, And then I don't know, maybe the parents go to some other part of the room and then eventually they know that the argument may be subsided because mommy and daddy look like they're okay. But the child never gets to see the most important piece, which is they may not see the beginning, the middle of it. Or, uh, Or if we did do that piece outside of their view where we come back and we explain to them and dissect how we work through it. So, I mean, that can be a very powerful thing too, but something that doesn't feel intuitive to do sometimes because you're thinking, I don't want the kids to know that we're arguing, but kids, if kids know that there's a beginning and a middle and an end, that can be very powerful. So for example, if my husband and I were having a disagreement over something ridiculous, um, I might say, you know, daddy and I are trying to figure this out. I could see how daddy wants to really, you know, he really believes this right now. And I really believe this, but one thing I can assure you is that we're going to figure this out. And in that moment, the child feels like, okay, they feel like, my parents have just assured us that we've got this. That's powerful. Very and powerful. Then, then I could have that discussion with them. Or let's suppose you went someplace else and we discussed it. When I come back, I'm not going to lose all of that gold. I want to sit down and I want to extract, not giving the details, but extract the gems. So now we've come back together. Like, huh, look what we figured out, how to play nicely and figure this out together. And then they get to see that conflict is not something to run from because you're going to have conflict everywhere you go, but there's a way to work through this powerfully. And this is the way to do it. Yeah. How many, how many people just as a grown up just end friendships with people because they feel they got, you know, something didn't work out or they didn't like the way they thought. And then that was the end of that. And 
friendship has just gone out the door. Well, or, or they don't really voice what they're feeling because they're afraid of conflict or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Where, where did you, like, what was your childhood like? Did you, did you have good parents? Were they good role models? Did they show you I what not to do? <laughs> unconventional parents. So, okay. so just to give you an idea of my father, uh, he believed that, um, he would say, let the children write on the walls because a wall can be painted, but you can never recapture a child's imagination. Mm. So I really thought that was really uh, forward thinking because I'm living proof that you can write on walls and not turn out to be a complete delinquent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's always the worry. And I noticed that I even get into a toggle with my husband about things like this. So he, he had, we had very lax rules. We'd spend every Sunday morning as far back as I can remember on my parents' bed. And there was four of us. And we'd get into debates and we debate about everything. Uh, and there was, we, we, oh, we had, we learned from a very young age to express. And my parents were very encouraging of us to express what our wants and needs were. So I remember being able to, you know, stand up to my mother, not in a defiant way, but just express to her, I don't like this, or, you know, I don't want it to be this way as opposed to keeping it all in sight. So we had a very, very expressive family, but we came from very expressive parents and parents that never tried to thwart our, um, our individuality and our self-expression, mm -hmm. whatever form that came. I think another very paramount thing that was done when we were kids from the time we were five, I remember this, and that was the ability to build perspectives. Like it's no wonder that all of my sisters are coaches and they're all doing quite well. And I think that when you start taking perspectives, and there's really fun games that you can play, but when you start doing this, you start to read cues and you start to get really good at reading cues. So let me give you an example. You know, maybe our parents would take us to a playground and my dad would ask me, those two kids over there, what are they, what, what are they talking about? Now, we're not even near the kids. What are they talking about? What are they feeling? What are they arguing about? Mm -hmm. Those people sitting on the bench, what's their story? And we'd have to make up. Now, here's the thing. Do we know for sure? Of course, you have to make up an imaginary story. But then when you get, keep getting pushed to like, you know, in, when they talk about brainstorming, you have to get to the third, third wave, the third, third wave of brainstorming before you start getting to the genius ideas. Mm. Yeah. So when mm -hmm. you get, keep getting pushed, now you're getting more uh, particular about facial cues, uh, about lip curls, about um, body language. Um, sometimes you can hear a bit of the tone, facial expressions. And then you also allow your mind to come up with many different permutations. And that exploration was extremely powerful in mm -hmm. being able to understand people. And I think that's why I sort of went into the, the trajectory that I did, which was always surrounding relationship and being able to understand people and what allows mm -hmm. people to have really epic relationships, not good ones, epic. Yeah. Uh, that brings up several questions. Uh, you mentioned earlier the communication under the communication and, you know, all of that body language communication and bringing that to the child's attention and awareness. And frankly, most adults aren't even really in tune with that. I mean, they're not picking up on those things. Um, they're just oftentimes still children with, you know, years of experience, you know, Oh, by the way, have you seen that movie rocket man? Not yet. The Elton John one. Fascinating story. The way that they told it, I mean, it, 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 it's very tragic because you can see that a lot of his energy was uh, to create and to be an artist. And of course his own, you know, sexuality and everything was, there was a lot of pain around it because of his childhood pain coming from his parents and specifically his, well, both of them, but his father, he, I think he felt very, you know, disconnected from his father and uh but the way that they tell the story and at the end how it all comes together he kind of revisits without giving away too many spoilers uh he kind of has a conversation with his child self and it's beautiful the way that they share it and it's super powerful because it i think it does an excellent job of showing how we all probably have still that inner voice that unresolved problems, the, the desire to be seen, validated, appreciated, loved, that child within us. And if we didn't get that from our parents, oftentimes that void continues to resurface in our adult lives. And I find that that messes up the frequency to connect with the world, with life, with your children. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's really good. I, well, I'd recommend. 
Thanks for that recommendation. I'm definitely yeah. going to see it. Um, that act of what's like reparenting your inner child. Mm -hmm. What that really means is there are all kinds of places where no matter how attentive and loving even your parents were or not, there are places, even for the most loving of parents, where a child internalizes, where they have a paper cut in their heart, they feel misunderstood, this mommy and daddy never hugged me enough, they never did, there's something that might be missing. And in that, like we are just, we create patterns and then we follow these patterns through throughout our lives until we have, we, we get met up against um, you know, we may have a disconnect with somebody. Maybe we're going through a divorce. Maybe relationships aren't working out, whatever it might be. And we start to now have to reflect on how are those patterns playing out in our lives. Now, here's the thing. It would be so lovely if all of our parents said, listen, I tried to love you the best I could. I wanted to do the best I could, you know, but I want to let you know that there are places that I've missed the mark. And I, I'm determined that before I die, I want to love you and understand you and hear you uh, in a way that love lands for you. Hmm. Yeah. I hmm. want you to be understood by me before I, like that is my highest priority. Some version of that. Every child probably aches to, to hear that from their parents so that the child now gets busy, rolls up their sleeve and says, okay, let me understand where I might've missed the mark. Let me go back and let you know that I'm sorry and bear witness to it. And hmm. let's see what we can create with me being very conscious and how we engage. And I'm going to ask you to teach me, Teach me how to love you. Teach me what you need. Often that conversation never happens with parents and children. So even as you grow up, maybe mom or dad, maybe they've passed on, maybe they're around, but they will never be able to say some version of that in whatever way that comes. Mm -hmm. Now this is the act of how do I go back and create a connection with my little girl, which by the way, I've been teaching that to my kids for years. I said, I say to them, that voice, first of all, that's inside of you. That voice is your deepest knowing. It's like your deepest intuition. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. There will come a point in time where your voice is going to say X and my voice is going to say Y. It's going to say something different. And in those moments, I want you to build the courage, which we're building consistently, for you to represent you, what you want even if, and trump my what I want. Mm-hmm. Because I want that their true self is allowed to emerge. And that can't happen if they're trying to please me or feel that they have to do that to stay in rapport. And that happens unconsciously all the time. So the act of reparenting ourselves is me having a really strong connection. And I actually get a visual of my little girl. And I imagine her, what she's wearing. I imagine what her hair looks like. She might come at eight. She might be five. She might be 12. And in that moment, I ask her a very important question. And I say to her, you know, I notice her facial expressions. And I go, what is it that you need right now? And to this day at 46, when I move through the world and I'm in a moment of a dilemma and I'm noticing that my chest feels contracted, I go back to my little girl and I I have a whole process for this, but I go back to my little girl and that's one of the questions I ask, what do you need right now? And in that moment, my greatest truth, like what I want and need is allowed to have a voice. Because here's the thing, if a child has um, whatever, uh, I guess, childhood wounds that we're carrying, if nobody goes back and, or if I don't go back and heal that, I will play out those exact same woundings, different way, different pattern, but similar. Mm-hmm. So one thing I've noticed from, gosh, well, 12 years of coaching parents, there's a dynamic that comes out and it's, it's, it's very unconscious, but it's this, I didn't get it. Therefore you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to share an example with um, my husband if we have time. Sure. So my husband didn't grow up in a, with a family that's very touchy-feely and huggy. I grew up in a household that was very touchy-feely and huggy. So he's very huggy towards me, but my son is born. He's the firstborn. And at the time, if he could live under your skin, like he would. He just like is one of those kids that could just like be there. <laughs> when he was younger, when he was much younger, he still is like that, but not as much, you know. So I noticed that when he'd stick to my husband like glue and then my husband would say, uh, why is it now he'd wait for Luke to go, but he'd say, I'm just noticing that Luke, he's like, he's constantly touching me. Now my husband's a very touchy feely guy with me and with the kids, he hugs them all the time. So I really need to like, you know, explain that this is a subtle thing that's happening in his mind. He's thinking why this is the story he's running. Why is Luke so needy? Right. Because he's there, he's rubbing my hands and he's hugging him, but he's kind of thinking at some point, isn't that enough for him? Mm -hmm. And so after he'd leave, he would ask me, 
I don't know what to do because I don't want my son to feel rejected, but I'm noticing this feeling inside of me. And so I said to him, do you notice that he doesn't do that as much to me as he does it with you? Mm -hmm. And he goes, yes. And I go, why do you think that is? Do you think that's by accident? And I said this really lovingly, of course. I go, he's reading that energy from you. Because here's the thing, in all the places when he fell, when he wanted to play, when he needed daddy to come and bear witness to whatever he was doing in the world, you know, they were busy because they ran a 24-7 business and they couldn't be there for him. So to have even the attentiveness and the hugs and the touch is kind of like, again, it's like he's, he hasn't dealt with his own wounding mm. where mommy and daddy didn't hug him and touch him all the times he wanted to. So we did like a little like somatic regression coaching where he could get back to his little boy. And in that moment, it was very, um, you know, he's, he's like, my husband's like a guy's guy, but it was very emotional, very, um, you know, there was a lot of tears as he went back to those places in his life. But until he could, we could go back to those places and then I could bear witness and go, you deserved be hugged. You deserved to have someone play with you because we could find that place. He would have still kept repeating that pattern because mm -hmm. it's almost like you're waiting for someone to go, you deserve to be loved and seen and heard and validated in all those places that you wanted to. And now that allowed him to heal a little bit. And then all of a sudden things started to shift. We stopped feeling energetically like you got to go. Not only is it what you just said, but also it's like, you you literally don't know how to do it. Like your body literally doesn't know what to do in that situation. It, you know what I mean? If he didn't receive that as a child, he may feel the desire and the emotion to want to do that. But like, if you haven't manifested that, it's hard to do that. Um, I, I talk to a lot of people often about receiving love. And a lot of times they'll say like, I, I don't even know how to do, what does that even mean? How do I receive love? How do I, it's just literally not in their body yet. And uh, I know this is kind of woo woo for some people. It's like a little bit out there, but it's, it is the, the fundamental core of all of our behaviors. <laughs> and, if, and if, and if somebody's dealing with, you know, resistance or there's something in their life that's not as effective as they, as they want it to be, oftentimes these are the issues that are, are playing out that they're not even aware of. Uh, pretty deep stuff. Well, well, um, the quick tip for that is in a very left brain cerebral world, right? Yeah. Where we, we are very disembodied. We need to, and, and I mean, this is the movement really that's happening very slowly. It's not hit a tipping point. We're re-embodying people. So how to receive love. This is now how do you get into your body so that you can feel and teaching people what it means to feel your feelings. Feeling your feel, I can't crack open your head, Peter, and go, aha, there's anger. It's anger in this little quadrant of your brain. Anger is psychosomatic. Anger is the, the story about my anger is in my head. The he mm -hmm. said, she said, coulda, woulda, shoulda is in my head. But the feeling is in your body, right? Who goes mm -hmm. into their body? That's not something we teach. Most parents, most parents didn't learn to go into their body. They're like, let's just keep playing out the story. And when you get stuck in the story, then it's very hard to actually feel. You can't feel when you're stuck in the story. Mm -hmm. You can't be present when you're stuck in the story. You can't receive when you're stuck in the story because to, speak, to feel is to actually go into, and how can I prove that to you? Because if you're ang angry, I can't crack open your head, but I can go to your physiology. I can see where your blood pressure is at, your cortisol level, your adrenaline level, where the blood has rushed to you, and I can go, you have the physiology of anger. And so that's why a feeling is something that if we don't help children, I'm not going to say boy, the children learn how to be in their body. And then even as an adult, there's ways to learn how to be in your body. Then you won't find that to be as much of a case anymore. Yeah. 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 Very true. Um, I, I wanted to, before we leave this conversation, can you share a little bit about your, the doll that you had, that you've created and yeah. where are you with that? Okay. And for those that don't know, bring us up to speed a little bit on what that is. And it's brilliant. It's a great yeah. idea. So I, I invented something called the Suzy Q and Simon Doll. Suze EQ because she builds EQ. And I thought about what did I do to, to with my children that allowed them to really start expressing at a very, very young age about their feelings. And I thought, how can I make this into something that's fun and engaging as opposed to like step in actions for parents? So uh, the Suzy Q doll basically is, and Simon Doll, is basically a doll that uh, 
comes with a backpack with really interesting feeling words. So not just happy, mad, and sad, which can be kind of boring, but words like lonely and words like disappointed and words like uh, jealous, right? Really fabulous emotions that you can have excellent explorative discussions with on your kids. And by the way, a child that's two can feel the word jealousy. So why would we not use the word jealousy if, you know, they see one kid can do a roly-poly and they can't? That's a really important word because just as Daniel Goleman says, if you have an emotion and you don't have a word for it, uh, you will start to eventually start to disassociate from that that emotion. And so entire um, emotions can be removed from your emotional landscape. So if you don't have the word, so essentially it teaches the words and the doll has um, like magnets throughout the body. And so it starts also getting you, uh, the parent to help the child recognize that the feelings occur in the body. So for example, where are you feeling your loneliness? Are you feeling it hit in your neck? Are you feeling in your throat? Are you feeling in your chest? Are you feeling in your tummy? Uh, she also, and he also has manipulable facial expressions. So you can move the lips and the eyebrows. Very important because you and I both know that even when you're teaching a child eye contact, it's the slightest curve of an eyebrow that can completely change the look of mm -hmm. somebody's face, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to get them attuned to facial expressions and that feelings occur in the body. So the backpack contains 20 words, but it also comes with a book. And the book is designed to teach children about how to basically connect with the feelings and be very expressive because most of the times when children feel stuck in an emotion, it's because they don't actually know how, or they have, they're afraid to be able to express it. So if we can teach them how to explain what they want without tantruming or yelling or feeling whiny, then you have a very powerful child in front of you. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So this really is a book for the parents as well to guide them so that they don't disown and marginalize and hierarchy emotions so it teaches them about the emotions, but it also at the end goes through a variety of different uh, breathing exercises and ways to calm your nervous system, which is really powerful. So on many different levels, the child finds it engaging because they start learning about emotions in a way that schools generally aren't teaching, teaching them about. And parent, it's, it's a way and in for school systems or for parents to get into really meaty conversations with their kids. I mean, even if you didn't have the doll, just having the word jealousy and then being able to share with your child moments in your life where you felt jealous and then inviting them, have you ever felt like that? That's, that's incredibly powerful mm -hmm. for a child to begin to, to learn about their own self-expression. No doubt. Um, so that is on, that yeah, that went on Kickstarter and um, got fully funded. And then uh, I had like my first and second batch of dolls uh, come in and they went out to all over the world, to school systems, private schools all over the world, public schools. Uh, people bought them for their own children. And uh, now I'm where I'm at is I'm looking for a place where I can mm, get them made, um, but a higher batch number, right? Gotcha. But, yeah. And so uh, finding that probably requires me to take a trip or two. Uh, all right. Would you sell them online at all? Or is it only through school systems or? That's all, that's all I sell them through is online. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can people get it right now on Amazon at all? Or do you not have the inventory or? I don't have the inventory right now. Got they it. really, as fast as I, I have them, they go. Gotcha. Um, once I'm able to, to put my next set of inventory out there, like for example, <laughs> there's a documentary coming out um, on conscious parenting and they do spend a lot of time talking about the doll and I need to make sure that my inventory is up for when that goes. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's going to sell out. Um, one last question before I let you go. What, why are you doing all this? Like wh where is the, what's the passion behind all of this for you? Where did that come from? Because it really has to do with, I, I have a very soft spot for children as most people do. But when, when a child is able to, um, I just find that when I've just looked at my, my own life and see if those moments, as, as aware as I am, as conscious as I try to be, there are times where I get stuck in my own emotions. And in that moment, it feels terrifying. You feel, um, you feel like you've been boxed in and you literally your ticket out of Dodge is the ability to work through that feeling and come out the other side and be able to express yourself and be able to take a different perspective and build your self-awareness. Like to me, I feel that where this is, this is really what it is. I feel that 
relationships are everything because we are here like a speck of dust on a speck of dust in the time-space continuum, okay? For all the eons that happened before us and all the eons to come, our life here for that, let's call, a, call it 100 years, maybe 120 mm-hmm. uh, on this earth is like a speck of dust on a speck of dust. And for that time, I mean, I might be lucky if my children's children hang a picture of me in their household. So for this time on earth, understanding how to love in a way that my love lands, whether it be a friend, whether it be a partner, whether it be my children, and they feel my love and we have a great connection, what else is there? Even if I amass all the wealth in the world and have every like check mark in the box that feels like I, I've arrived, like the old version of arrived, you know, mm-hmm. boat and plane, but I don't have really great epic connections with people. How, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like none of that, nothing. That's the thing that when you're in your deathbed, that's the thing that when you have everything to go, what allows me to feel really alive is all based on my relationship and my connection with myself and connection with other. Mm-hmm. So giving a child the ability to figure that all out at a young age is a difference between giving them, you know, hills to climb versus mountains. And I've seen with my own life, um, I've learned a lot of these skills. I was lucky early in my life and I'm still learning and I'll be learning till the day I die. And I get stuck in all the places that parents get stuck. Like, even though I do this for a living, doesn't mean that um, I've nailed anything. What it means though, is I know that when I get it wrong, right? Or I do something that's not useful. I know how to go back and heal it in an epic way. And mm almost be glad that the infraction happened so that we get to this level of understanding. That's really powerful. But I want that for all parents because, you know, when children don't feel, feel disconnected with the parent, that wound extends out so far into their life. It, unless they do a lot of inner work, um, it seldom heals. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and only because through coaching, I can see how that plays out. So if we can help, I mean, for me, there's no greater joy than when I see a child be able to express something to their parent, and all of a sudden, the parent now is the, all. Before it was like two aliens communicating, mm-hmm. going blah blah blah, and the other one's going blee blee blee. Mm-hmm. They love each other, but they don't know how to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then you see what's possible. You've taken them to something that's so extraordinary. So that feels really beautiful to me. And I, I love that. I'm jonesing to understand myself and others, so that's probably why I do it. Yeah, you know, I think as a parent, um, I think as an inexperienced parent, when I started out, the intention was to uh, be so perfect or so good or whatever to help make sure that my children don't get any wounds. And then as I've matured, obviously, and done my own inner work and been able to see my own parents as just people that are doing the highest sense of right at any point in time and just realizing like there is no avoiding (laughs) that the child's going to get wounds. Child's going to get wounds. Exactly. They're going to get wounded. And, and likely because I missed something, said something, did something, like I, I'm probably going to be some contributor to that on some level. And so I think the highest thing that I can do as a parent to my children is to teach them how to resolve those and how to communicate, and navigate through those. Cause they're going to, they're going to feel they're going to, I'm going to come up short somewhere. I know that I already have, I know. Um, So giving them the tools and and what you're doing and with the doll, Susie Q and Simon Q, I guess. Simon, Simon. Simon. Okay. Um, Is so um, powerful. And I appreciate that. One other thing that I want to leave before we go is this idea. I, I see so many parents say like, my children are this way or, you know, they shake their heads or they have tantrums. Or, I just can't get them to do this, that, or whatever. And it's, well, I've even had parents say, you know, my child, there's so many red flags and I want to encourage parents to think of those red flags are really green flags. They're simply that those are go signs for you as a parent, <laughs> your children, as I believe that your children are mirrors. And if they're dealing with something, if you're saying, oh, my kid doesn't listen, my kid's always losing it. They're always angry. They're always, you know, frustrated or they never follow through or whatever. It, it oftentimes is a mirror. And whenever I have problems with my kids, I literally go back and I think like, where am I doing this in my own life? And, and how can I then be the example for myself in those moments? And the energy shift oh is monumental. monumental. You know, that and right the problems there. dissolve. Okay, so right, that right there is one of the most powerful things that a parent can do. And what you have to do in that moment is you put your ego to the side and really ask the question, what is it about me that created that? 
If the kids aren't going to bed and they're not listening, what is it about my inability to create boundaries or, or really mamsy pamsy boundaries that have created that? Or what have I done to not create the safety and the listening such that the child is not listening, right? The, Correct. So yeah. this is now where if, in fact, that should be done with everything to do in parenting is take the responsibility off the child and own it. And I'll share this. And this is, a, t to me, a paradigm shift. We think that our job here, to your point, was to raise the kids and to guide them and to support them so that they thrive. No, the kids have been put here because no one will ever push your buttons like your partner or your kid <laughs> in a way that will make you go insane, right? Yep. Because of that, you will get a window into all of your neuroses and pathologies and crazies. If ever you want to get, I mean, everybody should have children. Dr. Shafali says this, everybody should have children simply so they can get a window so that you can now begin to transform. I can begin to transform myself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people will see the mask of Rhea, but my kids will see the real hardcore, no mask, real deal, right? Mm -hmm. um, depending on how authentic we want to live our life. I mean, more people see you know, you without the mask. But the goal is now is to recognize that the kids will always uh, illuminate these areas of growth, but we have to be able to push our ego to the side and go. And from my experience, it's always the parent. You know, you can't say that on the first day, but when a parent really wants to roll up their sleeve and go, I, once they get over the little anger and they have their little curmudgeon, they go, okay, what was it about me that might've created that? So it's so wonderful that you, you're doing that with the kids because then once that shift happens, then your listening is there. Mm -hmm. and communication like really opens up from that place. Yeah. Um, Rhea, where can people go to find out if they want to take next steps or if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Where's a, a place that they can go to find you online? Yeah, absolutely. You can check out my website. You can go to www.buildgreatminds.com. And on there I have, you know, free videos and I have articles if you want to check out and yeah, it's a great place. I, I'm experiencing jealousy over that name. That's a that's a great name for a website. <laughs> I'm feeling this feeling of jealousy. Where did that come from? Um, awesome. Rhea, thank you so much for your time. This has been very enlightening. I feel like we just got started and barely got into it, but uh, our time is about up. So maybe we can do it some more some other time, but thank you for your time today. Thanks, good. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. All right.